Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. Is money like oxygen for you? Is money the reason why you feel stuck? And will we care about money in the last days of our lives? Today's guest has helped many, many people die. And in those moments, money wasn't a concern for them. Jordan Grummet, AKA Doc G, returns to discuss his new book, Taking Stock. It's all about the fun stuff like money, death, and what we may regret at the end of our lives. Luckily, he's here to share his unique wisdom, both as a hospice doctor and a personal finance expert. Today, we're gonna learn how to focus on what's most important, put money in perspective, and prepare for a peaceful exit. Well, you were kind enough to have me on your podcast, Earn and Invest. And then after that, you were really helpful with my wife, with me as her, as her father was dealing with COVID and hospice and then eventually passed away. And so it was, it was great to just have somebody outside of the craziness that we were dealing with to just kind of give us that insight. And it, I don't know, it probably was really easy for you, but it, it, it really meant a lot to us. And so thank you again. And she, I told her I was interviewing you and she was just like, I'll send him my best. She was so, so happy. Uh, to be that I was reconnecting with you. So yeah, I'm, I'm I'm grateful to have you on the show. And then I'm grateful to have these insights, this connection between money and death, which are two, <laughs> you might as well throw politics in there. Why didn't, why didn't you just go <laughs> yeah. there? Why didn't I go for the big three? <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, first off, let's set a little context. I mean, a lot of folks may not even know what a hospice doctor is. So explain what that looks like what what that actually means for to be a hospice doctor. So a hospice doctor is a doctor who helps manage care for patients who are in the last six months of life. And it's usually at that point where we make the decision that we're not going to do any curative treatments anymore, right? So someone has a cancer, heart failure, or emphysema, or a number of terminal illnesses. And we get to the point where we're like, we can't cure this, we can't fix this. And we believe the life expectancy of the patient is six months or less. You know, there's this saying in medicine and it's what we all fear is having the doctor walk into the room and say, quote unquote, there's nothing more we can do. 
What I love about hospice is that's when we come in and say, no, actually, there are plenty of things we can do. Our goal is to give you every day that you have left to make it the best day possible. What can we do? How can we manage your pain? How can we manage your symptoms? How can we psychologically help you cope with what's coming? And in some ways, how can we help you think about your life and put it in perspective so that you feel some sense of closure when the end comes closer? So those are all things we can do. So it's a believe it or not, a very uplifting profession, which people think that it's the exact opposite, that it is sad and scary and you're meeting people at the worst time of their lives. But the upside to that is you can be there and be the strength and support as well as the good medical care and treating of symptoms and those type of things. That's something we can provide for people and make this difficult time much better. So I I really see it as a positive thing. I didn't realize... As I was going through your book and I saw the process and the questions and the conversations that you were having with people that are essentially on their, you know, they're in their last days and weeks and months, I didn't realize that there was so much of an inquiry, at least maybe it's your style, I don't know, uh, but that there, it's not just, hey, do you need anything to ease the pain? But you really lead these folks or you help them in uh, kind of these, what you call the life review, I think, and really taking into account, Hey, look, there's more to this than just helping you feel better physically, but also to look back on life and, and celebrate or make amends or whatever those things. So I didn't realize it was such an emotional, uh, part or that you lead it to. Cause I ask a lot of the same questions, but before folks are dealing with these life ending, um, realities. So, uh, I, I was blown away by that. I think a lot of people mistake this idea that the only type of pain we suffer is physical pain. I think throughout our lives, we also deal with psychological pain and trauma. And one thing we've learned over the years is if you really want to help people as they're dying, if you just manage the physical pain, but you don't deal with what's going on in their hearts and minds, that it's not a peaceful death either. So a lot of times we try not only to talk about the physical, but the psychological. And a big part of that is coming to terms with your life, which is something that I think is really important for anyone facing a terminal illness. But I love what you just said right there is the amazing thing about the dying is they give us this huge perspective about how to look at our lives and why are we waiting until we're on our deathbeds Why don't we start some of this introspective process much earlier? The lens of the dying is incredibly helpful, even though none of us want to be in that specific position. Well, let's go into that because I'll just set a context because we're going to talk, this this all dovetails into money and it dovetails into what I see and and it, it where money making money becomes the purpose of our lives. Like and we and everything else, we get distracted from all the other things, which we're going to learn when we're on our deathbed, we wish, may have wished we spent more time doing. And so there's this relationship where money is necessary, but it can also become this huge distraction. But let's, let's come back to what you just said, because I wrote some of the things down, um, the, the common regrets of the dying. I have them here. I don't know if you can remember them off, offhand, but there were, I was, I was, it's great to come back to these. The, I wish I had the courage to live life true to myself versus what was expected of me, that was number one. I, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Is that right? Uh, I wish I had expressed my feelings. I wish I'd fully expressed myself and my feelings. 
I wish I'd stayed in touch with friends. I wish I'd let myself be happier. There's nothing in there about, I wish I had. <laughs> yeah, no, no one is saying, man, I wish I worked more nights and weekends or man, I wish my net worth was a million dollars instead of 500,000 when I died, right? Now to be fair, when we're, we don't know how long the climb is, then we are concerned about how much fuel is in the tank, how much, how much, how much the resources we have. And when we realize there's maybe not that much left, then we're not that worried about it. So is, is that a fair uh, kind of analog to, to be like, well, now I'm at the end of my life. I don't have to worry about money anymore. I, I, wanna, I don't want to create a false expectation that we should live our lives as if, as if we've only got six months left kind of thing. I think the dying give us this amazing perspective which is what we just talked about. The regrets of the dying are almost never about money. They're really about what I'd call purpose, identity, and connections. You know, if you talk to Maslow, he calls it self-actualization. If you talk to happiness researchers who look at money and happiness, they call it emotional well-being or life satisfaction. But ultimately, this idea of contentedness, in my opinion, has to do with purpose, identity, and connections. That's really what the dying are focused on, the mistake the living make is they feel that money is a goal. What I'd really like to help people realize is that it is a tool in order to get a better understanding of our purpose, identity, and connections, and therefore think of it in those terms. So money is important. It's one of our most important tools. It allows us to pay for things so that we don't have to spend our time doing those things, and therefore we can put other activities into those time slots, which have meaning for us, but it is just one tool. And that's kind of what I'd really like people to understand. And the ultimate goal is to live a happier life, a life filled with purpose, identity, and connections. So I think we have to understand money and I think we need to know how to utilize it, but only in a sense that it's getting us to this greater goal and also put it next to all those other tools we have, right? We have our passions, we have our knowledge, we have our skills, we have our communities. I mean, think about all those millions of types of currency or tools we have. I think we have to place money squarely in there, but remember that it's one of many. All right, well, let's name the obvious because if I don't have enough money right now, I'm freaking out. Um, my kids have needs. My family has needs. We're, you know, we've got a mortgage or we've got rent. And so, hey, it, it is really important. It does become, if I don't have enough, it is the focus. It, it seems like it is the oxygen that I desperately need in this moment. So, but you tell stories in there of people that didn't have a lot of money that were dying and still, still were able to review their lives in a very satisfactory way, very contented way. But can we, is this, I don't want this to be one of those conversations for just the privileged, right? Where it's like, oh, I, I can say this now because I'm sitting on my bed of, you know, my feathery bed of, of money. So how, how do we address that? Like, where does that fit in? So I think we have to understand this idea that money is like oxygen in the sense if you don't have enough oxygen, it's the only thing you can think about. If you don't have enough money and you can't put food on the table for today, that's going to be the first thing in your mind. On the other hand, once you have enough oxygen so that your blood levels are high enough, having extra oxygen doesn't really do much for you. So I'd like to keep money in that perspective. If you don't have enough, it's really hard to live. But once you get to the point where you can do the basic things, it's not enough unto itself. 
Maslow and his pyramids started with things that were most basic, security, food, all those type of things. And as you build up Maslow's pyramid, you get to self-actualization. My argument is we can't wait until we hit those bottom rungs or bottom layers to start thinking of the top layers too. Instead, we need to flatten that pyramid. We need to think about money and we shouldn't ignore it. It's an important part of our life, but we also have to think about our happiness, our communities, our purpose, identity, and connections at the same time. Because again, money is one of the tools to safety, security, happiness, and contentedness, but not all of them. And I think we make the mistake of setting up this goal of I'll start thinking about the rest of the stuff only after I have enough money. What it does is it set up the situation where money is the goal. And often we then eventually get to that goal and are afraid or don't know how to start looking at those other more important goals that are also going on in our life. So I agree. When you have the privilege of having enough money, it is easier but I've seen countless circumstances of people who die in poverty who are happier and who have better, more contented lives than people who die with an abundance of wealth, but no connections, no family, no sense of purpose. So it can't be one without the other. What we really have to do is try to go for all of them. And just because you are not at a place monetarily where you want to be right now doesn't mean that you can't start thinking about those other important things in life at the same time. So we, I love what you said about flattening the uh, Maslow's uh, hierarchy that and bringing it down, that it's not, well, I'll think about those other things once I have enough, because that seems to be the trap. We don't know what enough is anymore, or maybe we never did. And I'm curious from your perspective, why is there such a distortion of enough? Why, why are we collectively stuck in this place of not realizing what enough is and then living our entire lives chasing this magical enough? Um, I, I, I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Well, I, I think we have a trouble with enough because we've never actually taken the time to examine what's really important to us. So I think we have what society tells us is important to us. We have what's easy for us to believe that's important to us, things like money and career and achievements. But the harder work is what truly gives us a sense of purpose, identity, and connections. And how do we figure that out? And how do we spend our time doing those things? That's really, really hard work. So often we put off that hard work to go for the lower hanging fruit. Money is a perfect example. It's really hard to tell someone what is or ask someone, what is your purpose in life? How do you identify and how are you going to work on that? People look at you dumbfoundedly and they don't know how to answer that. On the other hand, you say, how are you going to make a living? How much money is your goal and how are you going to get there? And people say, oh, well, that's easy. I can work more hours. I can get a higher paying job. I can start a side hustle. I mean, they're concrete questions with simple solutions it may not be easy. It may not be easy to get to financial independence. It may not be easy to get to that net worth goal, but it's very imaginable and straightforward. So it's really easy to think that that's enough. The problem is you get to that point, you start thinking about what your money goals are, you finally reach that level and you realize that you're no better or worse off than you started. You've just accumulated a lot of that tool, that potential energy, but you have no idea what to do with it. And so I think we get confounded by enough because it's really hard work to decide what we truly want in life. Often we put that off 
maybe because it by going after what is purposeful and has meaning to us in a sense we're kind of saying life is finite and i could get to the end of life and not achieve what i really want to achieve so instead of worrying about that instead instead of trying to go for it and failing i'm going to go for the easier stuff the lower hanging fruit and again that ends up being the material objects that ends up being the big bank accounts sometimes that's the promotion all of those things, again, are very easy and straightforward to us to look forward to. And it keeps us from doing the more crushing work of figuring out who we are and what we want out of life. Yeah. I see a lot of folks that tell me that their wins feel empty. And what that what that tells me, I mean, I see this a lot. It's unfortunate. But there's a theory. There's a theory that if I achieve that number, that status, that quantifiable thing, right, I, I've hung that that's going to be enough. And I get there. But the theory is that if I have, if I reach that quantifiable number, whatever that might be, there's a theory that says it's going to feel different. It's going to feel a certain way. I'm going to feel loved. I'm going to feel whole. I'm going to feel alive. I'm going to feel free. I'm going to feel this peace of mind and this connection. And so when they get there, it's like, well, I don't feel that. It must not be enough. So let's keep going. And I wonder if there's just that that inability to really go into our interior world and start to ask those bigger questions that, that you're talking about. It's like, oh, that's messy. That's uncertain. Let me just go rack up more numbers in the bank account because I can see that. I can make progress there. Well, let's talk about external goals. And let's look at money because it's just the easiest one, right? So there are a few problems with it. One is the dream of getting, for instance, to a certain net worth or a certain number of millions is really exciting. And people enjoy the process of getting there but once they get there, they realize that being there itself wasn't joyful. It was getting there. So then they actually decide that they have to get to that next level. So maybe it was one million. Now it's two million. Maybe it was financial independence. Now it's financial independence plus. So they they find that they want that kick of endorphins, those good feelings. Um, and it came from this drive, not from this actual false goal that they created. That's one problem. The other problem is loss aversion. We see this in financial independence a lot. People put this net worth number out as once I'm here, I'll be free. I can leave my job, et cetera. The problem is once you get there, you become doubly afraid that you're going to lose what you have, even more afraid than you ever were of never getting there in the first place. So we're kind of set up to fail when we set up these false goals I think what really feels like enough on the inside is not something where you can put a pin on the board and say, I'm done. There are these deeper ideas of purpose, identity, and connection. There's this idea of the climb, which is doing something that has deep meaning for me and making progress towards an eventual goal, but also enjoying that process to the point where it feels meaningful unto itself, regardless if you get to the goal or not. The perfect example for me is podcasting. I love podcasting. Podcasting is part of my purpose and identity. So how do I fit that into this idea of the climb or happiness or learning about enough? Well, let's look at podcasting. I can set a goal that I want a, a million downloads every month. That is an audacious goal. I'm nowhere near it, right? I can set that goal up and let's say I get there one day, but probably the first thing that's going to happen once I get there is I'm going to say, well, how am I going to top myself now? Or, oh my God, what if I fall down to 500,000 listeners a month because I don't do something right? So it's actually a very unhappy and unsettled thing. But what if I change that around and I say, you know what I really love about podcasting are those minutes 
that I am interviewing someone and I am crafting a conversation that is meaningful and important. And I just love being in that conversation. So first and foremost, I love the process. It doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if a million people listen to that or a hundred people listen to it already. That's been an incredibly joyful thing that really makes more concrete in me this idea of purpose, identity, connections. So that's the enjoying the process. Now let's talk about incremental gain. So I have a big audacious goal. I may never get there, but I can improve. I can become a better interviewer. I can do better graphics. I can be a little bit better at social media. I can do these little things. Maybe I won't get to a million people listening a month, but maybe every month I'll increase by 50 listeners or 75 listeners. To me, that's what enough is now feels like. And that's what happiness now feels like is again, being engaged in these climbs these purposeful, important things to us where we love doing it for the sake of doing it, but then also feel like we can make a little bit of incremental gain where we end up really doesn't matter. And I think when you start defining enough in those terms, because there is no point to stick on the map and say, I am now here, it's more these activities we fill our lives with, they're ongoing. They never end. We never reach enough or that goal because enough is in the here and now enough is better fulfilling my sense of purpose identity and connections and so enough is almost a state of being that you naturally reach and continue at as opposed to it being somewhere on the map and i think we make a mistake when we start thinking of it as somewhere on the map yeah i i unfortunately i i come across a lot of high achiever types that are scared of being content. They're scared of enough. For them, that means they're settling, they're, they're weak, they're getting passed by. So for them, the world and you know, their life, the purpose is to not be a loser. Whether they realize it or not, they think they're being winners, but in, in essence, they're, they're, they're really sleepwalking through life because they're not in touch with the process and whether or not they enjoy it. They're just looking at the comparisons and looking side to side. How, where am I measuring up? And so there, what you're describing requires us to be awake and to do I enjoy this process or am I only fixated on proving I'm enough and proving I'm better than. But I'm, I'm wondering, do you come across folks that are scared of satisfaction, contentment, that they somehow associate that with something negative? So I have two thoughts on that. First and foremost, with these people, and this is something I had to learn in my own life, I say something to them and it really kind of stops them in their tracks. And the thing I say to them is, you are already enough. And to the overachievement kind types, the people who are always reaching for the next thing, a lot of times the reason they're doing that is there is a real internal disconnectedness and they feel like if they can just get to that next achievement, if they can just do that next thing that no one else thought they could do, that they will all of a sudden be enough. And because of things like loss aversion, you have to start with enough inside, internally. You can't end with it. You are already enough. You are already the sum total of beautiful things that make up your soul, your skills, your love, your knowledge, your empathy. 
nothing you do today, tomorrow, or the next day is going to make you any more or less enough. And I really try to get these people to focus on this idea of that self-acceptance. You don't prove yourself enough by doing things externally. It's an internal way of being. So that's one thing I say to them. The other thing I say to them, which is something that I learned from reading your book, is at some point, you also have to realize that you are nothing. And the grand sum total of this universe and the billions of years and the huge number of people here, no matter how excellent, great, and amazing you are, probably no one will remember your name in 100 years. And certainly they probably won't in a 1,000, which is an eye blink of time. And as scary as that is for people to think about, I mean, ask, tell, ask someone that. It's like, if I told you in 100 years or a 1,000 years, no one would remember your name, how would you feel about yourself or how would you feel about life? The people who that really makes them feel bad, it's a pretty big sign that achievement is a little bit too important in your life, mm. right? Because the truth of the matter is this is reality and we have to let go of some of this, right? So all of this making a name for yourself and changing the world is great. And I think that's a wonderful thing, but I've started to focus actually more locally. Like I'm not gonna change the world. People probably won't remember my name in a thousand years, but I sure as hell can make a big difference in the people around me today. Like I can show up for people. I can use my skills, my ability, my knowledge, my love, my empathy to make someone's life better today. So I really try to get those people to reframe what really matters and try to A, get them to accept that they are enough and also that they are nothing. And if you can take those two things together and integrate them into your life, uh, it makes it a lot easier. It is liberating. It is liberating to hold both of those where I can play full out today, knowing that <laughs> it's really not going to matter. But I, I just find there's, it, I'll know I could be playful now. It's an etch-a-sketch, right? It doesn't mean like, well, if it's not going to matter, then screw it. I'm not going to do anything. It's like, well, now I can connect with what, what actually has me feel alive and where I feel more whole and, and instead of waiting waiting for those conditions to arise. And we can talk more about that. But I want to come back to something you wrote about in the book that when you realized you had enough financially, it was depressing. It wasn't liberating for you. So describe that because so many of us are like, man, I just got to get here and then I'm good. And you had the realization, but it wasn't that for you initially. Yeah. And in fact, in a sense, I had a panic attack. I, I got a book sent to me and I read it and it helped me frame my financial issues. And I knew immediately that I was financially independent. And it was at a time that I was incredibly burned out in medicine. So I was craving this ability to live without working and specifically live without being a doctor. And then all of a sudden it became a reality within hours of reading this book, I knew for sure. I'm like, oh, this is what I've been missing. These are the calculations that make sense out of all this. And it scared the heck out of me for a few reasons. One is my father was a doctor. He died when he was 40 and I was seven. And a big part of my identity was walking in his footsteps and becoming a doctor too. So by leaving this profession, I was letting go of one of the last connections to my father. But also, and just as importantly, I had allowed myself to carry this identity of being a doctor for so long, again, because it felt preordained and easy, but at some point it was no longer fulfilling me, but I was clinging to that identity because it was comfortable. 
And I knew when I realized I was financially independent, if I was going to have the courage to walk away from this job, what that really meant is I needed the courage to start looking into what is purposeful for me, who am I as a person, what identity really fits me better than the identity of being a doctor, which I had thought for so long was my sole identity and was my sole purpose. And so that's why it was incredibly disconcerting. And I've seen this over and over again in the personal finance world. I've talked to so many people who've gotten closer and closer to that net worth goal or have their finances on autopilot, which should feel great, but instead they seem feel listless and lost right. and this lack of energy. And that's because... They went after the low-hanging fruit just as I did. They went after what was easy, the money or the identity that came along with their job. And all of a sudden, they had to reconcile with the fact that they still had a huge amount of work to do. Money solves money problems, but doesn't really change your life otherwise. And so once those money problems are solved, that doesn't make all of a sudden your life magical or perfect. In fact, sometimes it magnifies all those other things in your life that you haven't resolved. And certainly for me, that's exactly what it did is it put a magnifying glass on all those parts of my life that were cracked and imperfect. And then I had to deal with that. And that was scary and painful. Gosh, there's so much in the, in your answer there, but that how we use money or how we use our career to give us a sense of identity, to give us a sense of direction. And then as long as that's chugging along, I don't really have to answer these deeper questions. And I really don't have to feel maybe that calling, that thing that's saying, hey, it's time to move on to the next phase. And I deal with this with many guys, whether they were fortunate enough to sell a business in their early 30s or they're in their 40s or 50s now, and they know, they know deep down that it's time to move on, but they have no idea what the next step is, or they, the idea that's there just seems too audacious. And it's way more comfortable to stay in that, that groove that they're in, that identity that they have, and make excuses. And I hear it all the time, but when we drill down to it, it's just like, but what would I do next? I mean, what would people think? I mean, who am I to sell my company? I'm not, I'm not, a, I haven't reached X status. So who am I to do this other thing? And, and really that's the resistance is going into this deeper phase, going from who am I to who am I really? And what do I really have to offer in, in this lifetime? And a lot of guys will stay in that game trying to be 20, 30 something years old instead of recognizing, no, you've reached the next level. And there's so much more, but it's really uncomfortable. It looks like a, a, you know, it's a, it's a scary place to step into that next phase. And that's why I love this visualization that I learned in the hospice. I take these kind of people and I say, okay, you just walked into my office and I looked at your blood work and said, you know what? I just realized you've got a year to live. If I gave you that message and you can imagine yourself lying in your deathbed eight or 10 months from now, and you're bemoaning your life, what would you regret that you never had the energy, courage, or time to do? And I love to pose this question to young people or people who are at a crux in their life, just like you're talking about, because we almost have to push them and flip that switch or people won't do the hard work. I, I love this when we're talking about buying something or making a big decision in life. Let's say you're talking about buying a house, right? And there are three people bidding on it and you're trying to decide whether you want to put that $10,000 over the bidding price that everyone else is putting. What I love to do to people is say, okay, I'm going to count to three. One, two, three, you just lost the house. How do you feel? Mm. People who feel regret and sadness 
that tells you something. People who feel all of a sudden relief, that tells you something too. That's what I love about this visualization about death is it brings everything to a stark standstill. And you have to, all of a sudden, you are forced to think what's most important to me. And a lot of these entrepreneurs, a lot of these people who've been chasing a company or chasing a net worth or chasing a job position, when you force them to think about it in an end-of-life scenario, all of a sudden, those things that they really wanted that they were too scared to think about or say come out. I really wish I you know, started that modern art collection. I really wish I pursued martial arts because I just think that was the thing I should do. I really wish I started writing that book because I always wanted to write that book about my life and I was going to always do it, but I kept putting it off. These are the kind of conversations I'm trying to have people to get people to have much earlier. And that doesn't mean you leave your job. That doesn't mean you quit working. It just means that all of a sudden we start to get really thoughtful about what is purposeful to us and how do we start integrating that into our life? There's lots of different ways to do that. For some people, that's quitting your job. For some people, that's going part-time. For some people, that's changing jobs to find something that's more purposeful. There's lots of ways to integrate that knowledge, but we've got to start having those conversations if we want to change our lives now so that we don't end up having regrets when you end up you know, meeting a doctor like me in the exam room. All right, let's zoom out because I want to help the guy listening start to ground himself. We're talking about a different mindset here. And if I grew up doing as I was told and I lived a prescribed life, you're gonna to go to school, you're gonna get this degree, this is gonna be your identity, you're gonna get married, you're gonna have kids, you're gonna live in the house, you're gonna da 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 da. And if you follow that formula, then everything works out, which a lot of folks have tried on. And some folks it works great, some folks not so much. If I'm not used to paying attention to my internal life, if I'm not used to paying attention to anything other than the bank account and how things are looking and how I compare to others, whatever those things might be, this is a, this is a challenging conversation. And now if I'm going to start to look through this lens of, okay, I'm going to die at some point, it could be a year, it could be six weeks, it could be 60 years from now. You talk about different, different ways of looking at it. Like I could go full on YOLO, you call it. Like you only live once and just like burn it down. Let's just, we're going to go the hedonistic route and just eat it all right now and to hell with tomorrow. I don't care. And then there's, everything is front loaded where I'll, I'm going to defer all gratification until way down the road because I might live for a long time. And so I can imagine, well, hell, how do I manage that? How do I manage that knowing that death is real? But at the same time, how do I temper my desires? So I think there's a three-step process, which was what the book really talks about. What you just talked about is the third step. So let me briefly just mention the first two steps, and then let's talk about that third step. The first step is actually getting in touch with your purpose, identity, connections, doing visualizations like we talked about. If you had gotten a terminal diagnosis, doing what we call a life review, at least starting to think about your purpose. Next thing is to really start thinking about your identity. This is all the first part of getting in touch with who you are. So purpose, identity, and connections. I believe that comes first. I think our big mistake is we put that last. I think we need to start thinking about that first when we're young. That's step one. And I would say, just to interrupt you, I would say that that is allowed to change and shift as you get older. Totally, totally. Because a lot of folks are like, well, that's me. I decided at 19 I was going to major in this and I was becoming this guy. And then it's fixed. And it's like, wow, what happens when... At 49, it doesn't fit anymore. Shit, 29. So that's allowed to shift. 
it is. And in fact, it should shift for many people. I mean, some people have one purpose their whole lives, but like me, my purpose was to be a doctor. Now it's to be a communicator. God knows what it's going to be in 10 years. That's fine. Purpose, identity, connections come first, step one. Step two, once at least we have an idea of what our intentions are when it comes to those things, start to build your financial plan. And there's a bunch of ways to do that. But a financial plan that allows you to bring that purpose, identity, and connections into your life now, not in 10 years, not in 20 years, not when you're on your deathbed. Once you've got step one and step two working and cooking along, then the last step is really what you just talked about. No matter how much you understand your own purpose and identity, no matter how great of a financial plan you have, we all face the question of, I'm here today, I don't have millions and millions of dollars, and yet I have no idea how how long life is going to last. So how do I decide when to spend money, enjoy the moment, take that vacation, buy that thing I really love, or instead take that same money, put it away, put it into the stock market, let it compound, defer gratification, take advantage of this idea of opportunity cost, right? The opportunity cost of your money. Once you spend it, you lose all possibilities of what it could do for you. But if you invest it, it grows and grows and grows and becomes bigger. We all face that question, how to decide when to spend now versus defer gratification. The way I love to deal with that is to ask yourself a basic question. And that question is, what do you fear most? And the caveat to this is, we don't know when we're going to die. I don't know if it's going to be a year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. So I can't really make any decisions based on when I'm going to die. If I knew when I was going to die, I could be very thoughtful about how much money to spend when. So the best proxy I have for that is what is my biggest fear? So I ask people this question, what is your biggest fear? Do you fear that you're going to die young and wealthy and never enjoy your money? That's one fear. Or is your fear that you are going to die old and broke because you spent all your money and didn't have enough to last you to the end? The reason why I ask this question is based on which scares you more, you can start making decisions today about how aggressively to partake in YOLO versus deferred gratification. Let me give you an example. My dad died at the age of 40 of a brain aneurysm. He had no way of knowing that he was going to have a brain aneurysm and die, but he had a feeling he was going to die young. And he told my mom this when he married her. He said, I feel like I'm going to die young. So for people in this situation, people who are worried they're going to die young and not be able to enjoy their wealth, let's say you spend 50% of your income on expenses, right? Things you have to pay for, your rent, all that kind of stuff. That leaves you 50% of your income left. Someone who thinks they're going to die young, maybe they want to take 40% and put that in YOLO and 10% and defer gratification and put that towards retirement. The idea is they don't think they're going to live long. So, you know, use 40% to do the things you want to do today. Take the vacations, take the extra time off, buy that beautiful car, save 10% just in case and live your life. That's exactly what my dad did. He lived it up fully. He wasn't really worried about retirement. So what happens if you're right and you die at the age of 40 like my father did? Well, you spent most of your money on enjoying today. Wonderful. You lived it up as much as you could. It was a good use of your money. Let's say you're wrong and you live to 80 or 90. Well, it is true. If you're spending 40% of what you have left over and only saving 10%, you're probably going to work to 65 or 70. No question about it. You're not retiring early. On the other hand... The whole time you've been working, you've been taking those great vacations, buying those things you wanted, and living life to the fullest, at least using your resources, one of your resources, money to do that. That ain't so bad. I mean, that's a pretty good way to live. Let's look at the other side. Maybe my worry is not dying too young, but I'm worried about living old and running out of money. Well, if that's the case, 
50% of your income goes to expenses like the other situation, but maybe then you put 40% of your leftover into deferred gratification, retirement accounts, et cetera, and then only use 10% to YOLO and live right now. If you are right and you live to the age of 80 and 90, you know what? By putting away 40% of your income, you're going to retire at 40 or 45 and you're going to have a blast that whole time and you're going to have enough money to fund the rest of your life. The only bad scenario is if you're wrong. So if you defer gratification quite a bit and happen to be unlucky like my father, didn't see it coming and you die at the age of 40, then you really did grind it out, work really hard and save a lot. And maybe you didn't enjoy your money as much as you could have. I guess the two things I can say about that is one, people who defer gratification and are really looking forward to this retirement tend to enjoy the process because they feel like they're making a lot of headway. So in a sense, they're somewhat happy. But the other point of that is then you really need to use that 10% to enjoy the moment and take advantage of these things that only happen once. And and you got to slow down a little bit. So you got to build that into the plan also. But I think that's the best way to toggle between yellow and deferred gratification. It's our best way of saying what's most important to us. What do we scare? What scares us most? And then use that to make specific decisions about how we use our money today. It's a conscious decision, not I, oh, I just feel a certain way. So some months I live this way and, you know, other months I live that way. It, it's a chosen, okay, I'm choosing to really drink up life. And, and, but I'm also doing it in a way where I still have peace of mind knowing I'm saving for the future. It's not, gosh, I hope I am. And I, I think that this takes into, maybe it takes it, it uh, takes it for granted that folks are this conscious about their money. Um, there a lot of folks, even like, I'm, I don't know how many guys I've met that make a lot of money, but they're still almost living kind of paycheck to paycheck because they haven't really matured financially. Um, is there anything, is the death part that helps us wake up to that? And I want to help, I want to help folks wake up to their, you know, to be mature about their finances and their planning. I, I think we also have to take into account that there is a joy in living fast and loose. And that's why I love this idea of automation. You can take those people who like to live fast and loose and say, okay, you need 10 minutes of planning every month or a few hours every year to set up the automations. And then you can go back and live fast and loose. So it's fine. You know, you don't want to think about this stuff on a regular basis. You don't want to be intentional. All you need to do then is set up a direct deposit into your investments so that 10% goes there no matter what. Maybe it's your 401k, who knows. Then the other 40% goes into a YOLO bank account and all you got to do then is spend whatever's in that bank account. So if that's really your joy, if your joy is not thinking about it, let's put a few guardrails in place so that you can still have that joy. Granted, I'd still rather that people try to be more intentional because I think I think the joys of being, for instance, fast and loose are the easy and small joys where the bigger joys are living these more fulfilled lives. And if we are more intentional, we're probably more likely to get there. So Ultimately, I'd rather have people be more intentional, but even if they don't want to be, there's some real simple ways to set this stuff up so that they can still feel very free. Let's talk about why people want financial independence. And, uh, you know, for, for most folks, financial independence is because they hate their work. They hate their job. And so they're seeking an escape, which is different than, hey, I enjoy my work and I would like to not have to worry about money. If I ever want to relax what I'm doing, find, you know, to, to make a living around that. And so there's a lot of myths around work and there's a lot of people that want to sell you something that, you know, every day should be 
the fourth you know, Christmas day as you go to work and that kind of bullshit. And on the other end is this, every day's a slog and you have to, you know, beat yourself on the back to get going. So what can we learn there about how we approach our work uh, instead of seeking this escape? Let me tell you the story that I love. I, I'm part of the financial independence retire early movement, right? So these are people who want to accumulate lots of money so that they can retire. So you have a subset of people who believe this philosophy and they have jobs that are mediocre, right? They're sitting in offices. It's certainly they feel like they're wasting their life, but it's not painful. It's not difficult. It's just they're not happy with their lives, right? So these people work, 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 make lots of money and they leave their jobs as soon as possible, right? They're like, how can I budget? How can I skimp? How can I really get my spending down so that I can get this net worth so I can stop working? So they stop working and then they go home and there was someone cleaning their house before, but they don't have the money for that anymore because now their budget is really cut down because they needed to leave work, et cetera. So what do they do during their days? They're doing their lawn, they're cleaning their toilets, they're fixing up the house, they're doing it yourself projects. A lot of these people, when you ask them, they say, well, you know, how do you like that? And they're like, yeah, I don't love cleaning my house. I don't love cleaning my toilet. You ask, well, what was more fun? Sitting in the office, making a little money and having someone else do that stuff for you because you had a little extra in the budget or doing what you're doing now. And a lot of them, when you really talk to them, realize they don't actually like all those things. So they've traded one taskmaster for another. And I think it's because we fundamentally misunderstand work. You're going to be doing work your whole life right? Everyone does. Sometimes our work, like when we're little babies, is learning how to read and write and walk and talk and those kind of things. That's all work, right? As we get older, we get jobs. We say we're employed because someone pays us for our work. And then after we retire, we continue doing work, whether that's around the house or our hobbies or, you know, things we like to do. Maybe we're not being paid for them. Maybe we are. But these are all forms of work. So the goal really is not to retire, and the goal is not to not do work. The goal is to align your daily work with a sense of purpose, identity, and connections. In other words, to do the type of work that's meaningful for you. And this is where I think we make the mistake. We look at our finances as a way that's going to save us from doing work we don't want to do. And to some extent, that's a little bit right. Money is a tool. If we accumulate enough of that tool, enough of that potential energy, we can then use that tool to have other people do things we don't want to do for us to open up these slots of time that we can then do things we want to do. So money is one of those tools, but we have lots and lots of those tools. And the key is to separate the money and the work and the employed, kind of separate all that from this idea of we are going to try to fill these time slots in our life for the rest of our life, right? We have no control over time. We can't buy it. We can't sell it. We can't trade it. Time passes. So I like to look at life as a series of time slots. Maybe they're days, maybe they're weeks, maybe they're hours. You can call them whatever you want, but we have these time slots. The only thing we really have a modicum of control over is what activities we do in those time slots that pass no matter what we do. So the goal of almost all our activities is really to fill those time slots with as many meaningful activities as we can while minimizing the activities we totally don't like or specifically the ones we hate. And if you look at life that way, it becomes a lot less about whether I'm specifically working or not. It becomes a lot less about whether I'm financially independent or not. It more becomes a question of the trade-offs 
that give me more control over what activities I do over my time. So I can work really hard at a job I don't like, do it really aggressively for 10 years, create enough of that money or potential energy so that I don't have to work anymore, quit work, and then I have a bunch of time slots left over to do what has meaning for me. That's one way of looking at it. Or I could be that same person sitting at the beginning of my career doing a job that I don't like, and I could say, you know what? I'm going to start working 50%. It's going to take me a lot longer to build up enough money to get away from work. In fact, I'm going to retire 10 or 15 years later than I would have in the first scenario. But guess what? During each day now, I have 50% of my time to fill with activities that have more meaning for me. I think this is more the way we should look at life here. We need to look at the trade-offs. We need to be intentional. If we are forced to do things we don't love doing, we should at least integrate them and utilize them in such a way to create as much space and time to do things we do like to do. If we're lucky enough to get to the point where we can start looking at those activities that we don't like doing and reducing them and filling them with other things that have more meaning for us, especially if we can find a way to make money doing those things, even the better. But the truth of the matter is we're going to be busy our whole lives. How do we want to fill those time slots? How are we intentional up front about filling those time slots as much as we can with meaningful things? A couple of things come up for me as you talk about that. First is there's nothing in there about the big escape, like this exoneration, that there is this path. Well, oh, you'll find your perfect passion and that the money will flow in and it doesn't feel like a, it doesn't feel like work, right? It doesn't challenge you in that way. You're still going to, I'm fortunate enough to do my calling and it still feels like work some days. It's still really freaking challenging. It just as challenging as the previous business I had that wasn't my calling. Okay. So the, the, so it's relaxing that and working with it instead of, wait a second, this feels challenging. I must be doing the wrong thing. I'm, I need to look for this other bright, shiny thing out on the horizon and, and try and, and make, make the escape. That's the first one. And then the second one is there, there's this real self-leadership that you're talking about here and say, wait a second, if this is truly this slog. I have it within my power to learn something new. Now, it might not happen in a, you know, watching a YouTube and then suddenly I can change my career. But if I look at my life as a whole, I could invest one, two, three years and make that course correction instead of settling and being like, well, you know, I set my feet in concrete and this is it. And so, yes, it will be super challenging to make that course correction. But I, I love that there's that choice. And, and I think for a lot of us, it's like we don't want to go through that. We just want something to magically change and, and take away our pain. And so we can go back to sleep again. But everything you're talking about is stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. And, and so two thoughts on those comments. One is about passion. You know, the passion play, finding a job you love and making enough money to support yourself doing it is a wonderful idea, but it doesn't work out for a lot of people. And that's fine, right? I love this idea. I think we're all looking for that. But a lot of times we either find we can't make a true living on our passion play. So maybe the thing we really like doing and love doing, we can make some money, but not enough to totally support ourselves. Or unfortunately, when you start getting external rewards for something you're deeply internally motivated to do, sometimes it quenches your internal motivation. So sometimes getting paid for something you love makes it feel like a job as opposed to something you love doing. So 
we we have to separate this idea that we have to be passionate about everything we do. In fact, you can do a job you don't like. That's fine. You just have to be intentional about the trade-offs and what that gets you in return. So I think that's really, really important. The other thing you mentioned is self-direction. And I, I want to go back to a conversation we were talking about just a little while ago about privilege, right? It's easy for someone like me who was a doctor, realized he was financially independent and then said, oh, I'm going to fill my time with things I love doing. That's a very privileged way of looking at this. But I think if you concentrate on the privilege, we lose the fact that these decisions that I had to make once I was privileged are very similar to the decisions we make even at the beginning of our career when we don't have much money. And here's where it comes to the self-direction. I talk about this idea that money is a tool, but it's one of many tools. So if you can think about someone you know who just finished college at the age of 22, they get a job they don't love, but they need the money, right? They need to pay for the rent. They need to buy food. And so they're working a eight to, eight to six or a nine to five. They don't love it, but they're looking at me and saying, Jordan, I hear what you're saying. Be more intentional, direct your life, but I have no choice. I can't quit this job. I can't go for something I'm passionate about. What am I going to do? I don't have enough money. And without enough money, I can't build myself the room to direct my own life. And so here's where I think we have to start looking at those other tools we have. You know, if you're 22, you may not have much money, but you've got probably a heck of a lot more energy than I do coming up on 50. You probably aren't married yet. You probably don't have kids. You probably have a little bit more time. Maybe you have more time on the weekends. So these are some of the other tools you have. Let's say you hate your eight to six. It's Monday through Friday. What if on the weekend, on Saturday night, when you finally recovered and had a little energy, you spent three hours building a side hustle? Now, this side hustle, though, has to be something you're passionate about. This is something that gives you a sense of purpose and identity. What if you did that every Saturday night? What if you use that other tool, your energy, and a little bit of your free time to do that? Let's look six, six months down the road. Six months down the road, one of two things happens. Maybe you've started to make a little money at that passionate side hustle you have. If you have, maybe you can turn that eight to six into a nine to five. Maybe you can turn that Monday through Friday to a Monday to Thursday. Already, immediately, without even having much money, you've all of a sudden created some space in your life and you've set, subtracted out something you don't like, which is your current job, and added in something you do like, which has purpose and identity involved with it, is the side hustle. Maybe you're lucky and after 12 months, you can go to Monday through Wednesday and make the rest of your money through that side hustle. Maybe one day that side hustle becomes your main source of income. Think about what you've created in your life, how you've directed your life, even though you started with very little, especially economically. Let's say the other side of the coin, you do the side hustle, you do it for six months and you make zero money. Well, you know what? You didn't make any money. You're still doing your eight to six, but you spend three hours a week, uh, three hours a week, every week doing something that had a sense of purpose to it. That was you were passionate about that added to your identity. So you didn't make money, but you still brought in more purpose and identity into your life. And these are the kind of trade-offs I think we have to start thinking about. When we're young, how can we start to flip that switch subtract the things out of our life that don't feel purposeful and slowly start adding those things that do, but also build a financial life around that. And I think if we start with that intention, even when we start from very little, even when we're at the so-called bottom of Maslow's hierarchy, we start working on all the aspects of our life together, as opposed to waiting until the one day I have enough money to truly live.
It's powerful stuff. And one of the saddest things that I see is, you know, when, when guys come to me and say, you know, I don't really know what my mission is. I don't know what my passion is. I don't know what my purpose is, whatever term they use. And I'm like, well, tell me, you know, we start talking and they're like, well, I'm crazy about this thing. I love this thing, but I could never make, I could never pay my bills with that. And so it just gets shut off and it's like, well, wait a second. Why does, why does it have to pay your bills? How, why can't your current gig empower you to do this thing in the world? And it, it, there's just this weird condition in the mind. It's like, well, it has to pay the bills. It has to fund our lifestyle. And there's no way, and I'm not willing to make the jump. And it's like, why would you? Like, just consider yourself lucky that you, you have some, a sense of clarity that you do enjoy this thing. It does have you feel alive and let go of needing the finances to do it. And a lot of times some guys get involved in that and then suddenly there is a financial trail to that thing. But for so many of us, we're so fixated on money. We're so fixated on like, that's the one box that has to be checked before I'm allowed to do anything else. And uh, relax that. Just be, just don't wait for money to give you permission to go do the thing that has you feel alive. Yeah, and it's fear. It, it totally is fear. It's this idea that doing that thing that makes me feel alive is actually scary and takes a lot of deep work and makes me redefine what I think is purposeful. And I'm not ready to do that. And so I'm going to go back to the money because it's easy. It's low hanging fruit. The answers are straightforward. Except you're going to be sitting on your deathbed one day and saying, how did I live my life? And the answer is going to be, did I have the courage to do that thing that was important to me? And I can guarantee after dealing with as many people as I have who have died, that there will be regret if you don't start addressing some of these things that are important to you today. All right, let's talk about that. That's, that's the, the one thing I wanted to talk to you about is that fear of regret almost creates more stress for me sometimes than what I imagine if I'm lucky enough to even have time on a bed to consider my life, you know, whatever could happen. And so I, I, your, your relationship to dying, not versus death, but the actual dying process and that regret and using that fear of regret, not even the regret itself, but the fear of having regret as a motivator, I, I'm wondering how we can use that in a healthy way and not let it get us kind of wrapped around the axle, living in the future and, and for, these, for those moments uh, instead of, uh, I don't know, it just, it feels like everything gets kind of locked down in the present. If I'm, if I'm always focused on, geez, I don't want to be regretful on my deathbed. So I use fear and regret because I think it really helps in that visualization. But the truth of the matter is I'm not really talking about fear nor regrets. What we're really talking about is investments. And I love this idea that we're really good at figuring out investing in our careers, right? Everybody knows how to do that. How am I going to invest in my career? I'm going to take these classes. I'm going to go to this college. I'm going to work for this firm. I'm going to build these skills. I'm going to make these relationships. We totally get investing in a career. We also get investing in the stock market and making money. We, we realize we can put that money in the stock market. We can have it grow. We can have it compound. People get that. So the optimistic spin is to move away from regret and fears, but let's talk about investments. I think what we need to do is evaluate what we invest in in life so that those investments compound 
and that we feel fulfilled at the end of life. And so we talk about investing in careers and money, but what we really need to do is talk about investing in a bunch of other things, like our relationships, like our sense of purpose, like our education, like our knowledge and our skills. What are the investments that we should make that are going to build that purposeful life for us? And I think that's, again, a way of, of flipping the switch and turning it from more of a negative idea to a positive idea, because we don't realize that not only money, but other investments compound, our relationships compound, our experiences compound, our knowledge compounds, the time and energy we put into our kids and our spouse and our friends, all of that compounds and creates wealth so much far above and beyond the material wealth we're so used to thinking of. So when you want to talk about what dying a good death looks like, it's someone who invested in these non-monetary things just as much as the monetary things. And all those investments have compounded to a full satisfied life in which they sit on their deathbed and they're not really thinking about regrets. They're thinking about the fullness of the experience they had and the legacy they've left in the people who come after them. It's beautiful. I can imagine that we can go from it's never enough financially to wondering if it'll ever be enough when I'm reaching the end of my life. And from your experience, do people feel like they did enough or, or is it like, gosh, I, I'm not ready. Obviously there's, there's a spectrum here, but do people ever be like, yeah, that I had a satisfying life and, you know, would love to live more. Or I'm curious what you hear, or, or is it just like, it was never enough. It was never going to be enough. So we have a famous saying in hospice, people tend to die the way they lived. And I can't think of a better reason that I wrote this book, because what I really want to do is try to teach you to live better now, to invest better now. Because if you do that now, you're going to die a good death too. Because again, people tend to die the way they lived. You've got to invest in your life. And that's what really this book is about. That's what I think this conversation is about. So I see plenty of people who die contented and at peace and with family and loved ones around, and even surrounded by things. But the things aren't things that they spend a lot of money on. Most of the time, the things are, are stuff that had a meaning to them, that reminded them of a time in their life that was important or a person that was important, right? So I see lots of these wonderful, quiet, peaceful, loving deaths. Um, and it's really, strangely enough, you know, I went into this profession, like everyone else, afraid of this idea of death. And I don't fear death at all now because I've just seen so many peaceful deaths. So I think it's very obtainable. And in fact, even those people who didn't invest well, sometimes when they get the diagnosis, they do reconcile them some things in their life. I call it the deus ex machina. It's the sudden plot twist that fixes everything. That happens. And in fact, we try to help people get there in hospice. We try to help them find that was lacking in their life and create some closure with that. But with this book, with this conversation, I'm trying to help you not have the last minute plot twist. Like I want to get rid of the need for that by helping you invest now so that it's a lot less work at the end. It's a lot more peaceful. It's a lot more natural. Here's to living and loving fully. Um, really grateful for your work. Really grateful you're bringing this to the world. Um, the book is called Taking Stock, A Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence. 
building wealth and living a regret-free life. Jordan, thank you so much, man. Thanks for this conversation. If these interviews are helping you, please leave a positive review on whatever podcast app you use so that others can discover the show more easily.